This podcast is brought to you by Michael Bengay Steiner, the author of a new book entitled The Advice Trap. Be humble, stay curious, and change the way you lead forever. Please join Michael and myself on podcast number 777, where we speak about the benefits of controlling your advice monster and learning how to be a better leader by listening with more empathy, mindfulness, and humility, with the net effect being a more empowered and engaged workforce. If you want to learn more about Michael and his new book, go to mbs.works or you can find out more about his corporate training by visiting www.boxofcrayons.com. We hope you enjoy podcast number 777 with author Michael Bengay Steiner about his new book, The Advice Trap. Thanks for listening and enjoy this interview. Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And Tom, as I do every time I do one of these shows, I reach out to the listeners and I thank them because they've kept the show on the air for 13 years. And um, we certainly, for those of you who are joining us, uh, this podcast will be posted uh, shortly. And we're in unprecedented times and uncharted waters. Obviously, everybody understands about the coronavirus. And today, joining me from Arlington, Virginia, is Tom Rath. And I specifically asked Tom to come back on the line uh, to speak with us about his book called Eat, Move, Sleep, How Small Choices Lead to Big Changes. Um, And my correlation here, Tom, is that you know, the healthier people can be, um, the better off it's going to be for them. And uh, there was a, a comment made about one of the newscasters. Let's make this real, uh, uh, the correlation to this uh, very timely, that, you know, when it came out in China on the coronavirus, they said 70-year-old men and women who smoked were the ones who had the biggest challenges. And they correlated that to being obese in the U.S. They said if people with obesity will have more issues um, with the coronavirus um, because it was almost like smoking. And we're here to talk about health today. Um, and Tom, I want to introduce you to the audience so that they understand. And then I want you to tell a little bit about your own personal story about how you got to writing this book. Uh, But Tom is one of the most influential authors of last decade. His studies, uh, the role of human behavior in health, business, and economics. He's written several international bestsellers, including the number one New York Times bestseller, How Full Is Your Bucket? In 2012, this book, Strength Finders 2.0, was with the top-selling nonfiction book worldwide. Tom's most recent New York Times bestsellers, our strength-based leadership, and well-being, the five essential elements. In total, his books have sold more than 5 million copies, and he serves as a senior scientist and advisor to Gallup, where he previously spent 13 years leading the organization's work on employee engagement, strengths, and well-being. Um, so, Tom, your personal story, which you told in the last podcast on the previous book, but I think it's worth mentioning to the listeners because it's how you really got on this path uh, to do the eat, move, sleep. 
and everything that you did, you were very conscious of. Could you tell that story real quick? And so our listeners have a context for this. Yeah, I think it is helpful context. And thanks for inviting me into your listeners for their uh, very valuable time. When I was uh, 16 years old, I was kind of living a normal childhood, grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I was outside playing basketball with friends and realized I was having trouble seeing out of my left eye. And by the time I got to an eye doctor, they told me that I had several large tumors on that eye and that I would lose sight in that eye uh, in the near term pretty quickly. And they said it also indicated I have a very rare genetic disorder that uh, essentially shuts off one of the body's most powerful tumor-suppressing proteins and uh, leads to almost inevitable cancer in the kidneys and pancreas and spine and adrenal glands and a host of other areas. And so um, I received that diagnosis when I was 16 years old. I'm now 44, and I've been battling cancer in all those areas I mentioned ever since then. So as a product of that, I've spent time literally every single day. I wake up and spend anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes, sometimes a lot longer, just researching as much as I can on human health and well-being. And early on in my life, I did that to kind of figure out all the things I could do to help improve my odds of living a little bit longer in good health. And in more recent years, I, one of the reasons I wrote the book, Eat, Move, Sleep, that we're talking about is because I pulled together so many little tips and tricks and ideas for better health that I wanted to be able to share that with the friends and family members who are always asking me on about that topic. Yeah, and it's uh, obviously a very timely topic today, and and it always is. It's just that whether or not it's it's very much piqued people's interest, I'm sure. Um, and Tom, you mentioned that the recent studies suggest that we do not inherit longevity, uh, which I was aware of, but as much as previously believed, that instead the sum of our habits determine our lifespan, as it relates to what we eat. Um, what, what have you found out from your own trial and error, because you've been your own best experiment here about some guidelines that our listeners could really follow? I mean, you've got this amazing website. I want to mention that now where people can go and actually build their own plan. Um, and that is available to them at eat, move, sleep. Dot org. That's eatmovesleep.org. There you'll find tools. I just did the profile and I was really, really impressed with what you've created there. But what have, you, what have your own personal uh, trials and tribulations with fighting these diseases told you that you would tell our listening audience? Yeah, you know, the biggest learning for me from kind of an overarching standpoint is that uh, and we can get into some of the details about eating, moving, and sleeping more individually, but um, you kind of need to think about doing those three things in combination because of the way they feed off one another. So if if I have a really bad day today and I'm exhausted and I'm stressed out, if I can get a good seven or eight hours of sleep, it's like the reset button on a smartphone or a video game, and I'm more likely to be active tomorrow. I'm more likely to make better food choices tomorrow, and so that starts to create upward cycles and spirals instead of cascading everything downhill. So one good night of sleep can kind of break the cycle. That's one takeaway. The other kind of overarching learning for me is that, you know, even in a case like mine where I am currently battling kidney cancer, pancreatic cancer, and tumors in my spine, 
that's not the greatest motivation to skip a cheeseburger and French fries and a milkshake at lunch today. Um, what is a better motivation I've learned and studied this in the research as well is knowing that if I choose a, some healthy vegetable plant-based lunch or have a salad with a piece of salmon on it or something that I'm more likely to have energy and higher well-being and to be more active and to be a better dad for a couple of young kids that need that energy at five o'clock in the evening, or I'm likely to be in better mental and physical shape for a meeting or a presentation at three o'clock in the afternoon if I make those same choices during the day. So the more that we can connect short-term incentives with what also happens to be in our longer-term interest, I think that helps us to make better choices throughout the day. And then the I guess the third aspect of that kind of choice architecture is we need to build the right choices into the environment around us. So force yourself to get up and down and move around while you're working throughout the day from an activity standpoint. Find little tricks that force you to do that, whether it's walking to the second closest Starbucks if you live in a city or using a wireless headset so you can walk around when you're on conference calls. And same thing applies with food choices. If I I know, for example, that if a bag of cookies or peanut butter pretzels make it into my cart at the grocery store, they're as good as in my belly. And so I need to make the right choices when I'm in the aisle at the grocery store so that I have healthy options when I'm at my weakest moments when I'm at home or in my office. Yeah, and and it does because we get cravings as individuals. And to overcome those cravings, no matter what it might be, some people stress eat, right? That's been a mm-hmm. big thing. And obviously, in these times that we're in right now, uh, I don't think it could be any more stressful for people, uh, loss of jobs and trying to take care of kids and trying to figure out what their 401k plan is doing and all that. And you state that the quality of what we matters more, uh, far more than the overall quantity. What advice would you have for people to improve the quality of their food? I know they've heard everything in the world about GMO and organic and all this, but um, all the recent studies actually show that a lot of the, a lot of that, Tom, is, is a bunch of hype um, in the fact that, and I don't take me wrong, but these manufacturers who manufacture the food that they put into whatever it is um, make these claims. I happen to be uh, watching Morgan Spurlock's thing on chicken. You know, and it's amazing how much chicken is consumed in this country. But if you saw how chickens were raised, and by the way, I'm vegetarian, um, you would probably never eat a chicken again. <laughs> right. You know, and it's it's interesting that I've studied diet extensively and read and tried about everything out there over the last 20 years, like a lot of us. And, you know, if you really peel back the layers across all the popular diets and fads that have moved, moved through the ecosystem, there are some commonalities, both from a what you shouldn't do standpoint and from a common advice standpoint. There's, I mean, if you really think about it objectively, there's even as many lousy diet books as there are, there aren't any of them telling you that you need to eat more fried foods tomorrow. And there aren't books telling you you need more added sugar and cookies and candy in your diet. I had one, per, I've had one person over the last 20 years try and argue with me that they actually need more candy and cookies dietary wise. And 
there aren't people out there telling you that you need fewer green and leafy vegetables in your diet, right? So I do think there's some very sustainable common sense about eating more more of a plant-based diet, more green leafy vegetables, more fruits as you can, and fewer packaged processed foods, fewer refined sugars in particular. That's, I think, sugars are the, the root of a lot of the problems that we see today. Um, and it's not, it's really not that hard to build some of those choices in that. And you mentioned uh, being vegetarian. I think one of the things I know that, I mean, we could have a whole show where we talk about the debate about uh, red and processed meats, which I've read a lot about and the like, which I, I don't eat either, either. But my biggest concern with uh, a lot of the meat intake isn't that if you set aside the ecological part of it and the environmental piece of it for a minute, because we're talking about health, um, mm-hmm. I think when people eat a lot of dense protein-based meats, there's this substitution error that occurs, whereas a product of that, they inherently eat far fewer healthy greens and plant-based foods as a product of that. So we need to find ways when you think about the totality of your diet to build more plant-based consumption, more legumes and nuts and beans and the like. And I, I think people are starting to come to some consensus around that from a diet standpoint. And the challenge is just kind of integrating that into the meals that we eat throughout a day. Yeah. And I think along that line, you you stated in the book that even seemingly positive choices can turn into a net loss if we're not carefully careful about everything that goes into a particular food or drink that we choose to consume. So what advice would you give the listeners about the decisions for food and drink? And in particular, you speak about this five to one uh, carb to protein ratio um, in the book. So, give us a little advice there. Yeah, I mean, from a from a drink standpoint, um, I, I you know, it's I, I've really narrowed this down since the since I wrote the book Eat, Move, Sleep. To, I mean, I try and base my entire uh, liquid consumption off of uh, water, and I do I make my own sparkling water with a big CO2 canister just so I don't get bored of what I'm drinking. So uh, regular water, sparkling water, tea and coffee, but you got to be careful with tea and coffee in particular, because if you can handle coffee, coffee can be pretty good for you. Um, But you need to make sure not to put sweetened milks in it in particular, because it's, it's really, you can really quickly take something that's a net positive back to that point, which I think black coffee, if your stomach can handle it, is a net positive according to most research I've studied. But if you put sugar in it, if you put sweetened milk in it, if you have Starbucks put any syrup in it, it can quickly become a net negative where it has more sugar and less nutritional value than drinking water or a neutral baseline. And the same thing applies to the foods that we've got to be cautious about. Let's say you order a healthy salad from one of your favorite places, but if you put a very... uh, sugar and fat laden dressing on that, it can quickly turn that into a net negative. And I mean, the same thing with a lot of uh, whether it's fish or chicken or meats that people put on sandwiches, the minute you layer that with all of the refined carbs that are in the buns and toppings that you put on top of it, you've really got to think about each item that goes into a given 
fish. It's true. And I think that it's, it's how you fix that salad, but also make it flavorful that you want to eat it, that it isn't a challenge for you. Because I think, you know, whether you make your own dressings, which is really highly advocated, uh, a oil and vinegar type of dressing, you're certainly going to cut back on the amount of calories, like you're saying, and you're also going to reduce the amount of fat. Um, now, considering the challenging times that we're in with the coronavirus, you speak about the importance that sleep plays in warding off uh, colds and flu um, and, and other diseases, actually, because sleep we're finding now, um, I'm doing some stuff at Mayo Clinic. Our next module is on sleep and the importance of sleep. How does getting the appropriate amount of sleep help us with this immune system or immune system deficiencies, as you would state? You know, it's a huge uh, and important point that you bring up because the, when people have asked me, well, what are, what are the things I can do to uh, keep my immune system up and avoid getting this, or if I do get it, avoid having a poor response to the virus? Um, the first thing I say, I just jump immediately to sleep and say, make sure that you're getting sleep because I, I've read this in all of the literature and I've experienced it myself. When I'm traveling and in hotels where I can't get good night's sleep and the like, those are the only times where I'm really likely to get sick and I can tell my immune system's taking a hit. So I, I think even if it takes you nine or 10 hours of kind of quiet downtime in your bedroom to get eight good hours of sleep, I can't think of anything that's more important in this current environment than to kind of level set with at least seven hours of quality sleep. And I'd agree because getting enough sleep and rest and relaxation and making healthy life choices is important. The, The walks that you take right now, people going out on walks, um, the bike rides that you can get in, all the things that you can do are certainly going to help um, to build that immune system. So you mentioned that uh, lifestyle choices can even be more influential than genetic background uh, when it comes to our longevity. Um, how is exercise, diet, meditation, and all of this in your estimation, changing us genetically. And I want to reference for a second here, not only your book, but for those who are listening, uh, Dr. Peltier, I did an interview with not that long ago called Change Your Genes, Change Your Life. And you are referring to something here that's a little more complicated to understand for people about actually the ability to change what's going on inside of them. And that's what doctors have found is that you can change the genes, right? Yeah. The, what I've uh, followed and learned the most about on that topic is kind of uh, what scientists often call epigenetic changes, where you're changing the you're changing the expression of your genes. I think technically, I'm not an expert on this, but um, I, I think that's what I what I've picked up from it is that you may not be able to. I mean, I, I wish I could wholesale change the bad genetic mutation that I got, yeah. but I can't, I can't change that, but I can certainly change the way the, the expression of those genes manifests to create cancerous growth and other things that are a downstream product of that genetic mutation that I have. So I do, and I've seen more and more evidence on this recently that just continues to kind of build the case that the way we 
the decisions that we make and the way we choose to live and treat our bodies and the those choices have a much more dramatic impact even on someone like me than that genetic mutation that I started out with. So, and, and uh, as you mentioned, I mean, some of that is, is a, it's not just about the food we eat, it's about sleep. And at a time like this right now, the after, after I put sleep first, as I just mentioned, but the second thing I say to uh, any of my real good friends I've been talking to in the last few days is, you know, n no matter how hard it is in cities around here and other spots, you've got to get outdoors in nature for at least uh, five minutes, ideally at least 10 each day and just go out, clear your head, take some deep breaths. It's actually, I mean, I, I think there's almost less risk in being outside with some natural light and good ventilation and so forth. And so I, there's a bit of a misnomer. I know people kind of are worried about and talking about this shelter in place, like you're not supposed to leave your house. But I think right. the opposite, I think the opposite might be true from even just from a public health standpoint, as long as you keep your distance, to be outdoors in nature a bit is pretty important for our health and well-being. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that, uh, yeah, the lockdown is fine when it's, you know, you're not keeping your distance. But if you're out doing your own jog or you're walking your dog or you're riding your bike, you're not hurting anybody and you're actually helping yourself and you're helping your immune system. Um, mm -hmm. And I couldn't agree even more. And I'd also state and ask you a question. Um, I didn't read in the book, but I don't know if you have a regular practice of any kind of meditation or whatever, but I have found that the meditators, I'm a member of Self-Realization Fellowship and have been for a long time, and my listeners know that, um, and it's a big part of my life. And I find that uh, meditation from a stress standpoint, um, especially when you're talking about immune system, is uh, highly, highly beneficial. Do you have any comments on on meditation, the Dalai Lama certainly is a good example of that. You know, I everything that I've studied on meditation and specific mindfulness practices and having more conscious focus just on basic biological mechanisms and breathing, I would suggest that everyone find a way to do that where they have a moment where you're literally just paying attention to inhaling and exhaling and focusing on that biological mechanism, especially at times like this when stress can be acute and hit throughout the day at different times. And I think that some of those basic practices, which um, honestly I personally need to learn even more about with some of the people I've been talking to and uh, thinking about, uh, I think can be greatly beneficial and timely right now. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And I just want my listeners to know uh, that the vantage point is, is the less you, how, whatever you do to relieve stress, uh, the more you're going to build your immune system. And you mentioned that we should do everything we can to replace refined carbohydrates with vegetables whenever possible. Um, and I, I couldn't agree, but what assistance can you provide the listeners out there um, when it comes to replacing the refined carbohydrates and with vegetables and helping them with weight loss, because we know weight loss obviously is, is a good thing. Um, any advice you want to give? I, I, yeah, but I would, I want, I would add one caveat at the start, and this has kind of been a personal uh, peeve of mine over the years is that weight loss is a very good thing, but 
I, I think there are far too many diets and programs and even academic studies that use weight loss as the main outcome or dependent variable from a research standpoint, and I don't think it should be. I, I think that weight loss is one of the things that goes along with being healthier, but if you solely aim your efforts at weight loss, there are a lot of things that contribute to weight loss that I don't think are necessarily always good for your overall general health and well-being. So mm-hmm. um, that's where I, I think it's 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 kind of a good surrogate along the way there, but um, maybe not not just the overall outcome. And so, get it, but getting back to that, I think some of the things that are good for overall health and related to weight loss that I've seen are. Um, and we t- we touched on this a little bit earlier, but a simple metric that I've used for over 10 years now and is anytime I'm looking at a label, I, I think calories are kind of a measure of volume and not a measure of quality. So I ignore calories. Um, I go right to the amount of protein that's in a serving because that gives you some measure of kind of density and filling relative to the number of carbohydrates. And Mm -hmm. most things that you get that you purchase that are in a can or a bag or a box, they will have ratios that are, for example, like 20 carbohydrates for every one gram of protein. And so Mm -hmm. I know when you're, when you're way out there at that 20 to one, that's probably a lot of things that your body will uh, digest and turn into sugar right away. They turn into glucose immediately when they hit the bloodstream, and so those are refined. So look carbs for better. You're just saying you're just saying to look for better ratios. Right? Look, yeah, the ratios try are, to yeah. try to stay below five to one. So try to stay below five carbs for five grams of carbohydrates for every one gram of protein. And the closer you get to one to one, where it's one gram of carbs for every one gram of protein, the better. And obviously, there's some things that you can eat that have even more grams of protein than carbohydrates, and so that. I, it's not perfect, but I think it's a far better measure of the quality of what you're eating than looking at calories or fat. I would agree. I think that's a great bit of advice, actually. And you also mentioned to eat less bread because of the effects that it has on the glycemic index. So what practical advice would you give our listeners out there that are addicted to their good bread? <laughs> Here's exactly, and I've learned this since I wrote the book Eat, Move, Sleep, so it's not in there. But um, boy, you know, I started a couple of years ago, uh, maybe three or four years ago. I began looking at the meals I eat most frequently, and I went out and bought a fifteen dollar uh, glucometer that tests your glucose with a little finger prick. Um, at the, there, which are there are plenty of them in any drugstore. And what I did was I tested 90 minutes after I would eat a given meal, how did my body respond to that? And so there's some surprises where I I realized that, you know, I could eat a scoop of ice cream and my glucose, which is normally about 85 or 90, didn't didn't go up that much. It might go up to 110 or something. But if I ate uh, three slices of pizza, it would go up to 190 or 200. And it's the same thing with different types of bread. So I started to learn how my body responds to all these different common meals, right? And that was a that was important learning for me. But since then, I've uh, I, I'm not diabetic, but I actually asked my doctor to write me a prescription for one of those Freestyle Libra sensors that uh, continuously tracks your glucose. So now I know how I respond to every meal in real time. And boy, it, it, you know, it's not it's not probably not practical for everyone, but 
that has changed my diet immensely because I know at a detailed level using numbers how my body responds to different foods and beverages and uh, different medications that I'm on, whatever it might be. And so, and I think from what I've studied about technology, I think we're within uh, 12 to 18 months of being at the point where we can get glucose measures uh, from wrist-based sensors and watches and the like. And I think that's coming and it will really change our diets. I think that having that measurement, which is what you're talking about, I mean, there's all kinds of trackers out there. I work with a company that makes one, as I said. Uh, but what's important is all these gadgets and gizmos that we get and we put on our iPhone or our Android or our Google phone or our Apple Watch or whatever do absolutely no good if we don't consistently use them and monitor and track them. Um and I think a lot of people buy them, and then after that, they kind of just sit there. So I'd encourage any of you, if you have one in choice that you really like, go for it. I'd also encourage you to go to Tom's website here and get more information about your own personal plan. I mean, I printed mine off this morning, the Eat, Move, Sleep plan. Really good practical advice. Now, Tom, you speak about a time when you your mother invited you all out for breakfast, and it's not you didn't make such a great choice. You had the eggs Benedict with the the sauce on top of it and all of that kind of stuff. And you know this happens. People go out to eat. Um, you took the whole family out. What happens to our energy levels? And in your case, yours is pretty drastic um, when you make these inappropriate food choices because you know the whole thing about. This is about monitoring our energy. Every You only have so much energy, and if your energy goes away, you're useless. So in your case, because you've been battling all this so long, you're probably a really good person to speak with about how to modulate your energy levels and what to eat. What would you tell people? Yeah, you know, that story you mentioned when I, you know, I normally eat pretty healthy, and so when I... I uh, went out to that restaurant and ended up having the eggs Benedict with covered in holiday sauce and it came with potato, fried potatoes and um, a biscuit and gravy on the side. And so I eat a meal like that. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, my daughter, who was, I think, seven at the time or so, she was tugging on my sleeve saying, Dad, can you take us to the park? And I was so wiped out. I didn't have the energy I needed to be a good dad that day. And it, it really hit me where if we make choices like that, that I mean, I it hit me like a wave. I felt like a hungover college student or something that afternoon and couldn't do the things that matter most to me. I think when we're able to get our diets to the point where we're kind of running like a finely tuned machine, let's say, because we're in our routine during the work week. And we, once you get to that point where you know that a meal hits you and zaps your energy like that, it's actually the way you talked about it was interesting for me to reflect on because you'll know you're in a good place when a splurge of a meal like that really wipes you out. Yeah, it 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 can. And you also know where you're in a good place when you can modulate that energy. Uh, the Human Performance Institute, which is something I've studied and been tracked for a long time, where they did this with executives. And I think the key in there is really how are you managing your energy? That's the key. And if you've got a good level set of energy all day long or you have more at one time, that's great. 
But when you bog down after a huge meal, like what Tom's talking about, not so good. Now, you mentioned that exercise is the best way to ensure a good night's sleep. Now, we hear of people not being able to sleep. This may be one of those times. Taking sleep aids. I know for a while I was taking melatonin. Um, What advice would you give our listeners about getting good night's sleep? When to exercise, because you said in the book, hey, if you exercise later in the day, that's a great time, but really wake up early in the morning, because if you get that first boost in the morning, which is when I do it, um, it's always better. What advice would you give people about uh, sleep and exercise and getting a good night's rest? Yeah, you know, it's a good point that there's some uh, good experimental research suggesting that if you can and you get that activity early on in the day, it energizes you and gives you a mood boost that is pretty high after three hours. It's still moderately high after six hours, and you can measure it all the way out for 12 hours. So it's better to exercise in the evening if you have to than to not exercise at all. But you essentially mm-hmm. sleep you sleep through that mood boost if you do that. So if, if you could structure your schedule, I would encourage people to exercise or be active as early as possible. And, you know, it's it's important to note that um, everything I've read would lead me to believe that we need to worry far more about being active throughout the day than we need to worry about intense cardiovascular activity. And I think for most Americans, um, when you hear people say you need to spend 30 or 60 minutes five days a week with your heart rate where it's hard to have a conversation, I think that may even do more harm than good in some cases because it intimidates us and we just give up and do nothing instead of trying to build a lot of little and subtle activity into each hour and into our routines throughout the day. So I would encourage your listeners to start by structuring your day so you're just up and around and moving around more. And then if you're able to, and if you have the motivation, I strongly encourage people to also get that 30 or 60 minutes of intense activity in because it gives you another boost and really should help with the sleep piece you were talking about in particular if people can get some exercise ideally earlier on in the day. And then when you asked about sleep, I think there there are some people who, because of chronic conditions or whatever it might be, um, do need medication. And if you can't sleep at all and you need medication to get you started on it, and then maybe CBT or cognitive behavioral therapy is a better option, it looks to be more effective and it's non-pharmaceutical, obviously, um, then I think that's another good option for a lot of people. But for for most of us who just struggle to sleep occasionally and it's not a, a chronic medical condition, um, I think one of the things that people can do is to just work back from the time you know you need to wake up and say, if you know you need to be up at 7 o'clock a.m., how long does it normally take you to get a solid seven or eight hours of sleep? And then just physically work back to that time, whether that's 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, and say, how can you make sure that you always maintain a consistent schedule and nine out of 10 times you are in bed by that time with no blue lights or screens an hour before that, and you've had time to psychologically unwind and decompress, maybe read a little bit and not have all that electronic stimulation, kind of disconnect psychologically as well, and then create an environment that's as dark as possible with as few uh, few of uh, dings or noises or interruptions to bother you as you possibly can. And to kind of 
think about engineering the environment so you have as good a chance as possible. All great advice, and there's only two things I would uh, add to that. One, when you do that exercise, you're increasing your metabolism, which is then burning more calories, obviously, uh, throughout the day, and it's levelizing those glucose uh, levels as well. And the other thing is, if you are working from home, which everybody seems to be doing these days, I'm going to be a, a, one of the probably the first advocates. Uh, it, I'm sure you've all heard this, but standing is far better for you. So go out and buy yourself a standing desk. I have two of them in my office, and I move between them, actually. So I'd recommend that. And at first, when you start doing that, Tom, as you might know, um, it's a little challenging to stand all day. And I'm not saying you got to do that, but all the experts will tell you that it's way better for you. Now, last question and our final question, we'll wrap up the interview here with Tom. You state that half of men and one third of women in America will be diagnosed with cancer. You mentioned that even if we are not formally diagnosed, that we have microscopic cancer cells in our body somewhere. You state that maintaining a lean body weight is one of the best ways to prevent those cancer cells from growing. What methods do you use to determine optimal body weight? Now, we have a lot of people out there, you know, your thing. I think the one I did, what's your BMI? Some of these places are guys will say, hey, well, you know, I have more muscle mass and my body, my BMI is higher. You hear all kind of conflicts. But what would you tell people about that? You've obviously studied this. Yeah, you know, when I get together with some of my researcher friends and talk about kind of physical health and outcomes, we're we're very uh, skeptical about BMI just based from a table, based on your height and your weight, because I think that there's there are a lot. If I mean, I, I know a lot of people who think about this stuff a lot and are in really good shape, and that leads to more lean muscle mass, and they actually have relatively low. Uh, body fat percentage when you no matter how you calculate that but they have a artificially inflated bmi because they've developed more muscle mass so um i would encourage people to you know it's not i think there are a lot of relatively inexpensive ways to measure um your body fat percentage and body fat composition, whether that's using electronic scale or calipers or some of the kind of water-based and oxygen chambers and the like. Um, I, I, I think for people who are into this stuff, that's a far more telling and accurate way to do it than just looking at weight and BMI. I would agree. And I think that a lot of it is, is rela- relying on that. And when people see that BMI measurement, they might be frightened, but they could easily be in really, really good physical shape. So I would concur with you on that. Well, Tom, I'm going to encourage my listeners. It's been fascinating having you on today and having the opportunity to talk about your book, Eat, Move, Sleep. Uh, for those of you who want to know more about Tom himself, go to Tom Rath, R-A-T-H dot O-R-G. The other thing I mentioned earlier, and I'm going to mention it again because it's a great opportunity um, he has all the reference guides and tools here, the first 30-day challenge download, group discussion guide downloads, all kinds of things for you to get really, really engaged in kind of the, what we'll call the eat, sleep, eat, move, sleep movement, uh, small choices, big changes. And you can get that at eatmovesleep.org. 
there I'd recommend going to the tools, the reference explorer. Um, you can certainly get the book on uh, Amazon and we're going to put a link to that as well. Tom, a pleasure having you on as our country deals with some challenging times, but we will get through this with the coronavirus. I really appreciate you taking the time this morning uh, to talk to the listeners and really just help them build their immune systems and help them feel healthier overall. It's been a pleasure. Likewise, and thank you so much to you and to your listeners for all that you're doing.